Dear Jesus, thank You for the gift that You have given us, the gift of life, eternal life, and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that You would continue to extend Your grace to the multitudes who need to know You. We celebrate, we thank You, and we worship You. In Your name we pray. Amen. Grace Awakening. If there's a sweeter picture of grace... I don't know what it is. Those are our last couple months of baptisms. Uh, if you're not aware, we do those after the 1130 service. Matter of fact, we'll be doing it again in a couple of weeks. If you've uh, trusted Christ or are considering doing that, we'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you've trusted Christ and never been baptized, uh, we encourage you to consider that as well. As we believe that's something that God leads each of us to do. The title of the sermon this morning is Grace Awakening. We're going to be in chapter... 43 of the book of Genesis, as we look at that picture of grace awakening, we see a man, Joseph, who has been through the ringer and been through many things in life, and he reminds me of this guy I read in the paper, matter of fact, it was on a news report, I got to see it as well, and uh, CBS ran a special on this guy named Mike Dello, he uh, had been in a motorcycle accident when he was like 20 years old, and now he's like 40 or 41 years old. And uh, about six or seven months ago, he was bitten by a brown recluse. And it took a little while because he's paralyzed for them to realize that. And they realized this spot on his leg, and they took him in and had to go in, and uh, they had to do some uh, a little bit of surgery and begin to remove this spot. He was in the hospital several days. Well, they came in to do some of their treatments, and when the doctors did, or Matter of fact, it was one of the nurses. They sent an electrical shock into his leg, and he jumped and screamed in pain. And what was miraculous about this is that, again, he had had no feeling below his waist for over 20 years now. And so they began to do some more work and began to do some more shocks, and uh, they realized that they couldn't even really explain it. But somehow, miraculously, these chemicals had reacted, and even though the doctors couldn't explain it, he now had begun to receive feeling in his legs. And five days later, he began the process of learning how to walk again, and he's walking now today. This is after over 20 years of being crippled and in a wheelchair. And uh, when they were doing this interview with him, I was reading about it. He said, you know, it's not like I, I felt like I've not had enough to overcome already in life, and then I get bit by this spider. And what he thought was... And almost a complete injustice and evil, somehow it is used for his good, and now he's walking today. It's a great picture of Joseph's life. Here's Joseph, and a man who has a vision. Matter of fact, a boy, he was a 17-year-old boy, had a vision that basically what would occur, his brothers and his father would bow down before him one day, and because of the intense jealousy of his brothers, and because of his father's favoritism toward him. The brothers have all they could stand. He comes out to check on them one day, and they say, here comes the dreamer. Here he comes in his special coat, in his special favor. Let's kill him. And so they throw him in a pit. And while he's in that pit, some caravan traders come along, and Judah says, hey, let's make some money off of him, and we can sell him to these traders on their way to Egypt. So, in fact, they do that, even though he cries out to him, we find out later. He goes on, and he's taken into Egypt. 
And while he's there at Egypt, he's bought and purchased as a slave for the house of Potiphar. He's so faithful to Potiphar that after a couple of years, he rises to the top as, so to speak, the head slave who has authority over all of his house. But because of his righteousness and because he is young and attractive, this woman, Potiphar's wife, is attracted to him. And the Bible says she continually invites him to go to bed with her, to lay with her. But he refuses, and he says, I could not do such a thing to my master or my God. He basically says, because of my faith, I will not do such a thing. And so she makes up a false accusation and has him sent to prison. And there in prison, he kind of rises as the top prisoner. And he is there with a couple of other individuals, and he interprets their dreams for him, one of which he knows will go before the Pharaoh again. And he asks him to remember him, but yet he forgets. So we see a man who has been given a vision by God, who's faithful in the relationships that he has, who's endured persecution, and now makes whatever vocation he has, he does the best of his ability and rises to the top. And now he is given the opportunity because of his ability to uh, have insight to dreams, because of his relationships, because of the persecution, because of his faithfulness and his vocation, he is now given a position of influence because he is given the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh's nightmare, and he interprets correctly. And because of this correct interpretation, Pharaoh makes him second in command in all of the land of Egypt. And so now he is a man of power, a man of influence. It's interesting. Just as Jacob's life, uh, or Joseph's life, finds himself uh, stirred and used and drawn by God, so we will see the brothers experience some of the same things. You know, God desires to awaken each of our hearts, and He primarily does it in three methods. Sometimes it's simply through the consequences of our bad choices and our sin. For example, if you leave here today and you speed down this road, we often have a friendly police officer who will stop and give you a wonderful ticket. And uh, you can say, God, why'd you do this to me? And really, God didn't do anything to you. You were speeding. You go through double oak. Those boys love to stop and say hello. And you can blame it on God if you want to, but the simple fact is you didn't obey the law and you get a ticket. But you know what it will help you do? It will help you remember each time. And I know, each time that I go through, I think now, you know what? There might be a nice gentleman who wants to say hello and give me the opportunity to make a donation to the city. And that will be my fault, okay, if I, I do that. But I think about that now. And it's, it's made me think differently. It's made me have a change of heart about the speed that I drive. Secondly, sometimes God just stirs our lives. His hand moves and stirs our lives. And we see that happening to Joseph. And now we see it happening to his brothers. God has caused a famine to come in the land. And sometimes God touches our body. Sometimes He touches our vocation. Sometimes He touches our emotions. Sometimes He just touches us in different ways. And it stirs us to the point that we recognize a need in our life and a need for Him. And yet other times it's simply a pouring out of His grace, an outpouring of His grace. As we saw that video, as we watched that video, you, you think about the grace of God. Sometimes you see how others minister to those in need or ministered even to you. And you experience the grace of God. 
God draws us multiple ways, but those are the primary three. And we will see this occur in the lives of Joseph's brothers. If you have your Bible, let's begin here in chapter 43. We know that the brothers have been in denial of what they have done to their brother Joseph. But then God stirred them. And they're having to go to Egypt because of the famine. And they now experience uh, the conviction before Joseph, whom they don't even really know who he is. They don't understand he is. But now they have conviction. And they even say in chapter 42, is this not God? Is His hand not upon us? Is He not punishing us, so to speak? And they feel the conviction, and they're about to experience the grace. Beginning in chapter 43, uh, verse 1. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, they said to their father, we must go back for a little more food. Now what has occurred on their last visit? Well, they went to buy grain, and while they were there, Joseph came out and recognized who they were, and he accused them of being spies. And he asked them about their family, and they said, We still have one brother left at home, and one is no more. But the one that left at home, he said, You're going to have to bring back to prove that you are not a spy. And he said, I'm going to keep one of you. So he kept Simeon. So the brothers went back, and we find them not rushing back because they're afraid to go back. Because not only uh, are they afraid, but Joseph had their money put back into their sacks. And so they have paid nothing for the food they have. But now they've run out of food. Now they're going to have to go back. And they come before their father Jacob and said, we need to go back. We are running out of food. We're, we must go back. And Jacob had said, no, I don't want to do that. I've already lost one son. Reuben had even offered, hey, I will give you my two sons as a sacrifice, so to speak. If you'll let them go back, I'll make sure. But Jacob says no. And now we pick up here. And he said, the father finally says, we've got to go back. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, speaking of Joseph, you will not see my face again unless your younger brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And Israel asked, and by the way, Israel and Jacob are the same individual. He is uh, referred to as both names. Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling me, the man, that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked. Do you have another brother? We simply answered the questions. How are we to know what he would say? Bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and your children may live and not die. I myself... Now, this is Judah. Now, what tribe does Jesus come from? What is he a descendant from? Judah. We've talked about typologies or foreshadowings, which simply means that you see an early picture, a vague shadow of what is to come. So we see this picture, so to speak, of Joseph being a foreshadowing of the Christ who is to come. And we see this picture out of the line of what? Judah. We see, Joseph, we see um, Judah say, make this statement right here. He says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. Now, in the Hebrew, he says, I will be a guarantor. In other words, his blood will be upon me. 
And my life will be representative and will pay the price for him. In other words, I will take full responsibility and pay the full price for my brother's life. You can count on me. You can put it upon my head. Everything that I own, everything that I am, if I do not bring him back to you, him before you, I will bear the blame all my life. Now, what did Jesus do for us? He took upon him our sin. He took upon our responsibility. His blood guaranteed, he was a guarantor, a guarantee, so to speak, to pay for our sins. He took our place. He was a substitute. And that's what Judah is promising to be for the life of Benjamin. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone twice already. And then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. That right there, mina is the Hebrew word that's given right there. And it's a token of submission, that word gift right there. So I'm going to recognize that you are the authority, that you are the ruler and I'm, I'm going to send a gift, a token of submission, he says. And notice what he sends with him. A little balm, a little honey, some, uh, some spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Now, outside of the nuts and honey, uh, what's interesting in chapter 37, these are the same spices and elements that the traders were in possession of as they took Joseph. Also, we see some of these mentioned also in the gospel, uh, in the life of Jesus. Interesting, if you remember what was brought before him, some of these same elements. Take double the amount of the silver, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of the sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty, may El Shaddai, the song that we sang this morning, God Almighty grant you, El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother Benjamin come back with you. Your other brother and Benjamin making reference to Simeon. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And so the men took the gifts and the double amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. Interesting. Interestingly here, the steward of the house, this uh, the Hebrew right here tells us basically the lead of the house. This is the same profession, the same job that Joseph had had for Potiphar. Now, this individual is also in that same position for Joseph. And notice what occurs here. They are being invited to a house with many rooms, by the way. There's a dinner being prepared for them, and they are getting prepared to eat. Now, the man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now, the men were frightened when they were taken to the house. They, they thought, we are being brought here because of the silver that was put into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us, overpower us, and seize us as slaves and take, us, take our donkeys. What happened to Joseph the first time? He was taken to a house where he was made a slave. See the picture being kind of revisited here. And, the, and we continue here in verse 19. 
So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down the first time to buy food. But at the place where we were stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver with us. We have brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. And notice what the steward says. Now, he's Egyptian. How would he know this? Well, Joseph has obviously spoken to him. And it maybe even told him to say this next phrase. And catch this in, in verse 23. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. And I've received your silver. Your God, the God of your father, has given you a treasure. Now, that word treasure right there, it speaks of a valuable gift of which you have not had to work very hard for. It's, it's the picture of you put the shovel into the ground and the first little load of dirt, you find something extremely valuable. You've put almost no, if any, effort into it, and you've been given a gift of tremendous value. You see the typology? Just as we have been given a gift by Jesus Christ of salvation, of which we have not earned or deserved, it has been a gift of grace that has been given to us. Your Father has provided, and He said, I've already received your payment. It's been paid in full. And they knew they didn't pay it, but the price has been paid. They didn't earn it or deserve it or do anything for it, but it's already been paid, He tells them. I wonder what they're thinking at this point. And then he brought, he brought Simeon out to them. And the steward took the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and has their feet washed and provided fodder for their donkeys. See the picture? They prepared the gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard they were to eat there. And when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house. And they bowed before him. Remember the picture? Remember the vision Joseph had had um, nearly 20 years before? How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low. There's that picture. They bowed low to pay him homage. And he looked about and he saw his brother Benjamin, his Mother, own mother's son. Remember, the rest of his brothers are half-brothers, but Benjamin is his full brother. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. And he went into his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face, he came out controlling himself and said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself. And the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Now, this verse explains the Egyptians would not have eaten with the Hebrews uh, because they felt like they, un un ironically, were unclean. And then the men were seated before him in the order of ages, from the first to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. And when the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Interesting. Benjamin receives five times as much as the other brothers. 
Joseph was probably thinking in his mind, I wonder how they are responding to Benjamin now. Benjamin, now the youngest son. Judah later tells us in his little dissertation that the father dotes on Benjamin. He is now, so to speak, become the favored son. How now do my brothers respond? Do they have the same spirit? Do they have the same hardened heart? Do they wish that Benjamin was dead? And so he gives Benjamin five times as much and probably noticing how the brothers will respond. And then we know what occurs. Then Joseph instructs his steward once again to put the money back into the sack. And he also does this. He says, take my drinking vessel, take my goblet, so to speak, and put it in the sack of the youngest brother and then let them go. And so he lets them go. And then after they've been gone for an hour or two, he sends his men out after them. They go before him. They said, one of you has taken my master's vessel. Why would you have done such a wicked thing? And they say, hey, to the one it is, let him die and we will become slaves. And so they start with the oldest son and they go through each one. And then the last son, the 11th sack, they open it. And there is the vessel. And you know what the Bible tells us that they do right there in chapter 44? They do this. They rent their clothes. The same thing that their father had done when he discovered that Joseph, or when they told him that Joseph had died and been killed by a wild animal, he rent his clothes. So do they rent their clothes at this point. Now they're on their way back to meet with Joseph, to meet before the master and the judge, and there is little that they can say. And so when they come before him, they offer themselves, they recognize we'll be as slaves. But Joseph says this, I'm a, basically, he paraphrases, I'm a righteous man. Only the one in whom the cup was found shall be punished. And at this point, Judah steps up and he says basically this. He tells the story of what all has happened to his life and says, you know, my father's already lost one son. I will be his replacement. Take me instead. Let me be the substitute. Keep me as your slave. I will give you my life. At this, Joseph recognizes that, hey, my brothers are different. Judah's the one, if you'll remember, who spoke out and said, let's sell him as a slave. Let's sell him and make some money off of him. And now Judah is the one saying, take me. I have personally guaranteed I have offered my life, so I will give it now in replacement for my brother. So that's exactly what occurs here. And then we pick up in chapter 45 right here. Let's see what occurs. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all the attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and the Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But the brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. The brothers recognized for the first time who he is. They've been extended extreme grace. They've been given their money. They have not had to pay for their grain. They have eaten in the master's house. They have received a constant grace from him. And now 
they are before him and they are guilty. And now they recognize not only are they guilty, this is Joseph. This is our brother who we had sought to kill, who he had sold into slavery. And now we are standing before him as the judge and as the authority. I wonder if they remembered back the vision that Joseph had had, just as it had been foretold. And they can say nothing because of their guilt. It's a picture of what it is like for us as we come before a holy and living God. And there is nothing we can do or say that gives an account for our sin. There's no way that we can pay it off. There's no way that we could ever extend to Him the grace that He has extended to us. There's no way we could give any kind of excuse before a holy God. And so they stand terrified and guilty in His presence. And then Joseph says this, just as God says to us today. He says, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five there will be not plowing nor reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Hey, I tell you what, as I read through the Old Testament, and particularly through the book of Genesis, it just so reaffirms my faith in God Almighty and in Jesus Christ as we see this picture of how those who had sinned and who had fought against God's servant, who had fought against what they thought was their salvation, and there was nothing that they desired of Him to the point that they sold Him into slavery, into what they thought was certainly death. And then they stand before Him And they have nothing that they can say. They recognize their guilt. They recognize that they have been given grace. They recognize that they deserve death. And what does the Father say? What does the Master in this situation say? He says, come close to me. Let me tell you, God meant for this to occur. I have provided, He provided my life as a means of salvation for you so that you might be saved, so that you might be delivered. What a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, last Sunday, I was in Phoenix speaking at one of our church plants, Daniel and Mindy Scott, who we sent out from our church and who we're sponsoring right now. And uh, they started a church outside West Phoenix in a, in a neighborhood that's about 12 miles into the desert. And uh, they're out there and just doing a great job, meeting in the school just like we did. And when I got there, I met this couple that was being baptized that day. Their names were Celine and Paul. And Daniel began to share the story with me. He said, you know, uh, when we we got here, um, Paul was very antagonistic toward us. And uh, Celine came, and she went to one of our women's events. And uh, he, he came. she came back, and she said, you know, um, let me tell you some of the things they said. He goes, don't believe all that stuff. He goes, I don't believe anything they say. All they want your money. Uh, I don't believe in that church business anyway. He said, uh, yeah, there's probably a God, but I don't think he has anything to do with us. And, and he just, Daniel would say, every time I was around this guy, he would just say something real sarcastic. He would kind of mock me or mock our church. And um, he said, and then this summer, Paul lost his job. 
And then his wife lost his job. He said it came to the point where they were rationing out ramen noodles for their children. He said, and we found out about it. So we just started to take food. At first, I just took food from our house. And then as a church, we began to, to, to buy food for them. And then we paid for their electricity and for some of their bills. He said, then Christmas time came around and we provided gifts for all their kids. And he said it was at that point that um, Celine accepted Christ as her Savior. He said Paul was still thinking about it. And uh, he said, I began to meet with Paul and talk with him. And his, God had softened his heart. And he came to church. He said, and then just a few weeks ago, he accepted Christ. And then uh, that day, they were last Sunday, they baptized Paul and Celine. Here was a man who had nothing to do with God Almighty, nothing to do with Christ or his church, and was antagonistic. But God stirred his life. And then he saw the grace of God through other believers and he was drawn by that power. Let me ask you this question today. Just as Joseph's brothers were, just as Paul and Celine were, is God stirring in your life today? You see, here's the picture. We can either choose to deny, as the brothers had done for so long, deny their sin. You can notice God stirring in your life, but you can say, I, I don't really understand. I don't really know who God is. I, I don't know if I want to do anything with it. But what about that conviction? You're in that place where God's been stirring your life and you're convicted. And you realize, God is speaking to me. I need to give Him my life. I need to give Him control. I need to reestablish a commitment to Him. I need to make one for the first time. I need to accept the grace that I see that He has for me. And the only thing that we can do is repent and say, God, I believe who You are. I'm a sinner and I simply need forgiveness. I don't deserve it but will you forgive me and come into my life? That's exactly what happened to Paul and Selene. That's exactly where each of us has to come to, to that place where we recognize our need for God and that it can, we can only experience grace and forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, you know what happens? Just like Joseph, they entered into a relationship with their brother. They entered into a relationship to who was their master at that point. So can we once we accept the grace and repent of our sins and recognize who God Almighty is and say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Come into my life. I want to begin that relationship with you. I know that you have the power to restore and forgive me and to deliver me. I confess you. Have you ever done that? I want to challenge you to receive Christ this morning if you've never done that. Maybe you've drifted away. It's time to reestablish your commitment to Him. Father, thank You for this time together this morning. Thank You that while we were still sinners, You died for us. And Lord, regardless of what we've done in the past, You have Your arms open wide, extending grace for all who will repent and confess You as Lord. And Lord, You are saying, come close to Me now. Let me take your life and let me restore you. Let me reconcile you to God Almighty. Lord, if there's someone today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit and we will give you the praise and the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.